Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Today, we are actually joined by my co-host Arun, calling in from India, and Saeed Mashir Ahmed, calling in from Hong Kong. He is the founding board member of the FinTech Association of Hong Kong, the founder and MD of FinStep Asia, co-founder of India Tech Hong Kong, and the founding board member of the Global Impact FinTech Forum. And I'm sure I missed a few, but welcome to the show, Mashir. Thank you so much, uh, Theo and Arun, for having me. And it's, uh, it's a pleasure, and I would also add an honor to be on this podcast. Yay, we are looking forward to it. Um, I think every time when we have the most blast is talking about what's going on in, in Asia, because, mm -hmm. I mean, let's just be real. That's where all the action and innovation is. Um, so quite a journey you have there. And I know I do not do it justice by just a quick 30-second summary. So how about I let you do it? How did you go from being in India to Hong Kong? How did you get started on FinTech? That's always an interesting question because I, I think back when we all started, I'm not going to say how many years ago, we didn't have FinTech, right? So how did yeah. you embark on your journey? Right. Um, it's it's interesting when, when you talk about what is FinTech and how we classify it as such, right? Um, I am originally from India, as you mentioned, I'm from a a city called Bangalore, which is India's IT capital, uh, and 50% of India's IT revenue comes from there. But I'm not an IT engineer. I did my engineering as an industrial engineer, landed up in a trading job. Uh, I was trading for a company known as Futures First in India, with, who are uh, uh, headed by the Hirschen Group globally, uh, based in London. Uh, and so I was trading financial markets uh, through my computer, high-frequency trading, uh, if it were. Uh, if you call 200 milliseconds high frequency. Um, but that's where my uh, exposure first to fintech came in, in, in some senses, right? because everything we did was electronic. Uh, we, speed was important to us, and uh, we had to make sure that uh, we were well-versed with the softwares. And uh, also, whenever we are reviewing any market information, uh, compliance-wise, uh, once I started heading teams, I need to be aware of that. So that's been my first exposure of fintech without knowing that it was fintech in some senses. Uh, but the real change or interaction in fintech happened uh, post my uh, move to Hong Kong. So I, after spending nine years trading US, European markets, fixed income rates, commodities, uh, you know, going through Lehman Brothers crash, looking at the European crash, uh, everything uh, as possible from rate hikes to rate cuts. I decided that I wanted to uh, do an MBA to hone my uh, people skills, as well as uh, have an ability to uh, work in a large financial center, which is what Hong Kong is and has been for, for a few decades. So I came here to do my MBA with the University of Hong Kong and London Business School. While at, my, at the leg for uh, London Business School uh, in London, I visited Level 39, uh, which is a preeminent incubation slash uh, accelerator based uh, in Canary Wharf and owned by the Canary Wharf Group. Um, it, it came about and it's an important uh, institution to mention as such because uh, it, it tells a lot about why FinTech came about, right? But uh, in 2008, 2009, uh, due to the financial crisis, many banks shut down or you know downsized significantly. So Canary Wharf Group who were building these rows and rows of building uh, in, in Canary Wharf, had a lot of space and they decided to use one of their floors 
to incubate startups, uh, especially those related to technology. And uh, so when while at LBS, I visited uh, Level 39 and I met a few fintech companies, came back to Hong Kong and nothing, like literally no conversation around fintech, one panel discussion in a month somewhere in a small room uh, with people such as Henry Aslanian, James Lloyd, who are in their own right fintech leaders for Asia, uh, speaking to 20 people in a room once a month, right? Uh, and now, you know, they could draw audiences of thousands uh, individually. Having said that, so there wasn't much movement, very traditional banking system. Quite a few banking players would dismiss technology and its impact thereof on uh, on financial, uh, financial models uh, beyond, uh, say, trading. So I started getting involved as a volunteer for the first fintech-focused event in Hong Kong, which is Finnovasia thereby uh, then going on to participate as you know just attending events to then moving on to uh, moderating a few panels the turning point came when we uh, supported the hosting of the first hong kong fintech week i was part of one day where we organized a community day for uh, during the hong kong fintech week the first hong kong fintech week in 2016 uh, and uh, from there few of the community came together and uh, about 10 of us took up uh, the heavy lifting and set us up set up as the inaugural fintech uh, board and uh, i took over as the first uh, general manager when we launched in 2017 and that's that's where my journey in fintech uh, started as such Quite a journey, Mushir. Um, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for that. Um, now, looking at uh, emerging markets by virtue of your background and all that, so I've, I've uh, practically landed in India a couple of weeks back, and every time I come here, I see the uh, see the progress in in some of the fintech use cases that we have here. Mm -hmm. um, this time around, the challenge I had was I get on Uber, I try to pay them cash. They just can't accept it. They're like, you have a phone pay. You have a Google pay. I'm like, you. what are you doing to me? I mean, I, I ended up paying <laughs> at least 150 rupees more than what I should be paying because they didn't have the change. I just ended up yeah. paying 300 rupees every time I took a cab. Um, uh, it was, I, I kind of viewed it as charity, but uh, uh, uh -huh. it, it kind of goes to show that we are starting to see that kind of a very accountable payments infrastructure uh, 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 in India, and I'm sure a lot of the Southeast Asian economies are not far behind as well. Uh, but there's so many opportunities. I'm talking to quite a lot of fintechs in India at the moment by virtue of my work at Delphos. Um, mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily all of them fintech, if you think about it. So you, you see agri-tech firms wanting to lend. You see agri-tech firms wanting to create insurance products for uh, from crop insurance perspective. Um, E-commerce products actually getting into payments. Telecoms getting into payments, so it's so fascinating how fintech is and and embedded finance is kind of starting to uh, develop in Asia. What are your thoughts here? Because we we don't get to see these kind of exciting use cases in London or in the US. It's always the same boring stuff. Uh, so what are your thoughts here? Um, it's it's interesting you you mention about uh, India, right? And uh, and and the difference you've seen in in the, the way things have changed. It's very reminiscent of what happened in China, say, five, six years ago. 
So as part of my MBA, I landed up uh, for one month in Beijing. And uh, that's my first experience of WeChat and everything was online, you know, I mean, all mobile payments and nobody was accepting cash. Uh, and a couple of years later, when uh, the Chinese government decided to uh, issue a ruling where you had to link your mobile wallet to a bank account, uh, quite a few foreigners like myself were excluded from that. So I would struggle and try paying somebody with cash and they would just not accept it. Uh, and uh, even in a 7-Eleven, uh, it would be difficult for me to buy anything. So um, this is an experience that India is going through. Having, But you have to keep in mind that we are talking about a very eclectic mix of uh, markets in Asia, right? Uh, many times uh, what happens is people group Asia as a whole, and uh, but we have varying degree of innovation, acceleration, and development. So markets like Hong Kong, even though financially, financially they are highly developed and per capita of close to $50,000, are probably behind markets like mainland China and India, which have much lower per capita income of 10,000 and 2,000 US dollars uh, per, per, per capita, respectively. Uh, and then you have Southeast Asia, who have very, very different growth. So initially, I would say a lot of uh, Indian, so coming back to India, a lot of Indian fintech models or even startup models were replicas of uh, American uh, fintech models uh, or, uh, or e-commerce models. So Flipkart being an uh, almost an identical copy of what Amazon was, and it was set up by ex-Amazon uh, employees, right? So they started off with that, and then you had a bunch of others trying to replicate what um, Americans were doing overseas. Um, Paytm had a significant stake from Alibaba, so they kind of followed a little bit of the Chinese model, but. Over time, uh, Indians realized that you need to cater to a in a different way to the local markets and newer models started emerging. As you mentioned, these agri-tech models are interesting, but payments was the big push. Critical to all of this is the India stack, right? One of the world's only and probably one of the world's best digital infrastructure set up by the government themselves uh, for enabling uh, a host of different digital services. For those who don't know India Stack, India Stack uh, effectively is a multiple layer stack of uh, various various entities and uh, devices, as I may call them, uh, to enable financial inclusion and digital financial inclusion as well. Right. So it starts off with the identity layer, which is what Aadhaar is, the world's most uh, uh, the biggest uh, biometric database of over 1.2 billion Indians. So the government uh, set these uh, centers up across India in about five years, we were able to then have you know, 1.2 billion Indians on, on the database uh, with all of their biometrics. Now, uh, these biometrics uh, and the Aadhaar card, which is, uh, think of it like a bit like a social security number, the Aadhaar number, can then be used for a variety of KYCs and you know for accessing government funds uh, or subsidies uh, with, uh, over 500 million, if not more, Indians are dependent on aggregation economy and a significant chunk of that also dependent on government subsidies. This became an important enabler. And then you have different layers uh, for uh, digital uh, payments. Uh, you have what's called the unified payment interface, which plugs into the India stack, which is the real-time payment system in India built by NPCI, a consortium of uh, large banks which has accelerated payments uh, across the base because you can use feature phones or mobile phones and QR payments 
and use of UPI has enabled uh, many different models to come uh, into play. You don't need necessarily a license to uh, operate a mobile wallet like Google Pay does in India. Uh, and other fintechs and uh, startups have uh, started building models on top of these, uh, the non-banking financial corporates or just plain fintechs using uh, underlying uh, banks, uh, the convention banks to offer services. So open uh, RazorPayX, uh, Neo are examples of Neo banks in India who are uh, who don't have banking licenses or a virtual banking license and are leveraging off uh, this ecosystem to offer services to a variety of uh, individuals and SMEs. Wow, I, I, I love that. I'm like taking notes and listening to it and, and being fascinated. And, and I, really, that, I think we need to do more of these because every time when we talk to someone outside of, of the West, collective West, I'm amazed. Like, oh my goodness, I feel like we're living in Stone Ages and, and listening to, to what you guys are saying. And I absolutely do conquer the last time I was in Shanghai. I thought I could link my, you know, bank account, which is foreign, to my DD. And obviously that failed miserably. And I got yelled at by the cab driver in Mandarin. And of course I was hopeless. I had no idea what he was saying. So he was yelling at me. I had the Google Translate app trying to understand what he was saying. And it turns <laughs> out that he was upset. I did not have, you know, the proper setup and I had cash. I'm like, I I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> I had no idea. Um, and, and then coming back to the US, of course, you know, it's, Cash is still very much accepted and, and, you know, me being from Hong Kong originally, I am happy with cash, but, you know, I feel lost in places that when people yell at me when I'm trying to use cash. Um, so let's talk about region because you touched on it a little bit um, earlier. It, it's Asia is such a mix of different progress and different areas, right? You're looking at Tokyo, you and I were both in a session recently yes. um, trying to look at, you know, the innovation in Tokyo. And then there's Southeast Asia. And even within Southeast Asia, it, it's so many different countries looking at so many different things. And you have India, you have Hong Kong, you have China, all of those. It's fascinating. Um, different regions battling all to be the top financial hub, if you will. Yet yeah. all of them doing something different. What do you think is going to happen in the next one to three years? And I'm not going to hold you to it because things change. Um, but I'm curious, what do you see the next few years going to play out? In, 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 in which way and what sense are you looking for? Um, I don't know. Like, who do you think is going to be able to get ahead? Like, for example, the last few months, we have seen immense changes. Um, within the the ant group, right, from where sure. they were planning for IPO to where they are right now, and having to change their business model, and then you look at Grab and GoJack battling it out, and I don't think that area is is big enough for both, but I could be wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And then back like what two years ago, I think um, when I was in Hong Kong FinTech Week, we listened to Line and how they yeah. were trying to expand out, and that has gotten a little quiet. And then you look at India. And you look at all of the different payments players and, and all of those, it, it's like every single week, is, it almost feels like it's a new year in, yeah. in the U.S. So what, what excites you the most? 
I, I think this is what excites me the most, right? It's almost what you say. It's like every week it's something new from somewhere, right? I have a few people who send me uh, updates on uh, fundraising and it's just amazing me how uh, the amount of funds being raised in Asia on a weekly basis is just astounding and stunning. Even with COVID, uh, in fintech uh, has not lost um, you know, the, the rise of amounts of funding that's been done. I don't have the numbers at the top of my head, but I do know that there wasn't a significant change from, say, 2019-20 to uh, 2020. Uh, and uh, there was a bit of... India had pretty good uh, fundraising uh, on its own. And in China, you probably had... that. Probably the one that was most impacted was mainland China from a fundraising perspective. But you did, you did see some stellar... Uh, uh, fintech, uh, sorry, stellar startup IPOs, right? From uh, last uh, last month, you had Quesho, uh, which is the competitor to ByteDance uh, or TikTok, as most people know about it uh, in, in mainland China, backed by Tencent. Uh, they had a, a, I think they had a 2x to 4x, I think they had a 2x increase in their price uh, since uh, IPOing, right? So phenomenal uh, companies. Uh, and the way this is moving ahead is, one, you are seeing organic growth uh, of a multitude of small fintech players maturing now. Right? So two, three years ago is when a lot of these players started their journey. And uh, with their maturity and bigger fundraising rounds, it gives this um, uh, confidence to venture capital investors to come in further. Right. So when you see a return is when you come back. One of the reasons people continue to invest in stock markets over time is, yes, it's safer, but if you, you take the whole, uh, you know, the thousands of stock listed in the stock market, it's because you have a certain confidence in the amount of returns that you may be able to generate, right, uh, beat the, the index as it were. So you kind of benchmark that. And VCs are now seeing that potential growth uh, and they know where to go in for whatever type of risk they have. So early stage or late stage, but it's percolating down to early stage and that is improving. So younger founders are getting uh, funded Ideas are getting funded much sooner than they were, especially in places like India uh, and Southeast Asia. Uh, we've seen some bigger funds uh, being raised, uh, quite a few multi-hundred million plus funds being raised in India for, uh, for fintech uh, specifically and technology overall. So I think that's one positive. Second thing that excites me is the platformification and of uh, almost everything, right? Uh, we started off with... Uh, uh, Ant and uh, Tencent actually mastering this. Uh, I, I call WeChat uh, Hotel WeChat. You can check in, but you never check out, right? Uh, it's 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 with a lot of uh, without looking at the surveillance element or any other element of it. It's just to do with how immersive that app is. And let's be and very honestly, WeChat interface is not your most beautiful, most intuitive uh, interface. And over six years, I haven't really seen it change that much it still looks the same uh similar tabs they've added uh mini programs which which is very exciting because i feel in five to ten years time you will not have apps in apple and uh, android uh, should go in with the mini program model which is everything is stored on the cloud you just search for it you get the app and you use the functions right why do you need to download a half a gb app on your phone and which needs another two 50 uh, MB of an upgrade every two weeks. Uh, this is just, they are data guzzlers, which is also when you're uploading, which means battery usage, blah, blah, blah. You go into the whole story, but mini apps basically showed that, I think uh, WeChat has 100 plus mini apps where 
when you pull it down on the screen, you can use those apps. So I don't need to download those apps individually on my phone, right? So these are all integrated. And once 5G comes through, the speed is going to be lightning. So, and which is already there in mainland China, being trialed in other parts of the world, including Hong Kong, uh, that will change significantly. So five years down the line, 5G will, three years, after three years in Asia, in Korea, in Hong Kong, mainland China, and uh, possibly Japan, 5G will transform many, many things, right? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, so I know you're a Star Wars fan, as am I. Uh, and uh, holograms are something that excites a lot of us. And this is not a Hong Kong company or an Asian company, but uh, there is an American company that is uh, building up uh, ability to, uh, what's the right term for project holograms using a mobile phone. Because now with 5G, there's a less loss of data packets. And streaming is uh, much faster, and you can actually do it real time. So they're building this out. Uh, it's a 28-year-old uh, who was a Star Wars fan in his younger days. I I'm digressing. Uh, it's a segue, but I'm, I'm sure you love this uh, bit of anecdote. But coming back, right? So platforms, I think, has been very important. Uh, WeChat, you wake up on the alarm on WeChat. You uh, chat with your friends on WeChat. You book your cab to work on WeChat or pay for your metro using WeChat. Go to work, talk to your clients and your team on WeChat, right? Then you book your restaurant for lunch on WeChat or order from WeChat, split the bill on WeChat, uh, you know, share gossip with your friends on WeChat, uh, book your ride home on WeChat, do your shopping on WeChat, and then, you know, watch, uh, play video games on WeChat. And you can also do a bit of content viewing and social media on WeChat. So it's an all encompassing app. But UI UX is, is, is decent, not mind blowing. Uh, and that's what's been replicated by the others in, in particular, Grab and Gojek are going that way. Uh, in India, Paytm potentially could be that super app. Geo, uh, which is backed by Reliance India's largest corporation, uh, and got, I think, what, what was the funding? Uh, over $30 billion. And Arun may be able to correct me on this, but significant amount of funding, over $20 billion for sure, was raised last year, which, uh, in a sense, made the parent company's uh, uh, net debt uh, zero, right? Because Amazon invested, Facebook invested, and a bunch of others invested into uh, Geo, which will be the next big thing, uh, simply with all the money that's come in and people taking a stake. Uh, so super apps are going to be very interesting. Third, this does not excite me in necessarily, but it is an important element which will end up being very positive for the ecosystem. The Chinese regulation that came in post the antitrust move uh, on uh, Ant Group is important because uh, forgetting about, I mean, without getting into the details of why it may have been triggered, you know, due to uh, the speech by Jack Ma or other reasons, uh, it now means there may be a better level playing field for other players in the mainland Chinese market. And drawing from that, you start seeing other regulators trying to and, uh, regulate big tech, who have largely globally been able to provide a host of financial services without having the same regulatory burden that banks and other financial institutions face. India is much more tech heavy, uh, regulation wise, it's, it's much more heavier. Uh, but I do feel that is going to be quite interesting. So uh, TikTok and Kwaisho are both starting to offer uh, fintech services or payment services on their app, right? So small medium app, You'll have, uh, you had the FCA giving out a warning about uh, financial uh, advice or uh, financial products being sold on uh, TikTok. 
and you know it's not appropriate people should evaluate the risk etc but it just tells you that there is significant amount of that happening on these uh, short form videos and that could be another model for uh, of use right so uh, take a and take tiktok uh, for example which became hugely popular in india because people love that short form format it was big in tier 2 tier 3 india as well but it's also useful for uh, all these uh, small retailers right show a 15 second or a 30 second clip of your product right and then show a qr code for somebody to pay and uh, buy it that's what they were doing on wechat right uh, uh, an interesting model uh, which you are, i'm sure you are aware of and a phenomena which is uniquely chinese uh, to a sli- uh, which will start spreading the rest of the world is live streaming and the live streaming e-commerce is massive uh, in 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 mainland china where you see videos of uh, presenters uh, or kols or key, uh, walking around with about a 50 or 100 mobile phones stacked up on one trolley and they're moving through a store talking about it and uh, with an army of people with them right uh, which is because they have that many they need that many channels and they are selling at the same time people view it they like it and they buy it uh, americans haven't yet modeled that for how do you translate earlier actually maybe in the 80s and 90s and uh, maybe i'm, uh, I'm not uh, doing justice to the american ecosystem you had this right call up now if you want to buy something right people have forgotten about that Uh, it's a lot of just direct marketing in terms of use our product do this do that whatever right but they used to be like here buy this in the next 15 minutes our lines are open and you will get this discount whatever that's that's mostly disappeared from television if i'm uh, correct right yeah we don't yeah. do much of that anymore <laughs> yeah and, and so you could think about how live streaming has changed that which is you like this buy this now and then comes these social models of uh, the likes of uh, pingdodo which i'm guarantee you 95% of people have never heard of right pdd as it's it's called is a social e-commerce platform uh listed in the us and not many people know it is now by volume third largest in china pushing jd very hard uh during the singles day uh sales it was actually number 2 in the last year or close to number 2 from what i remember uh pdd works or pingdodo as it's called uses uh, a bit of a groupon mentality and uh, social e-commerce uh, model right uh, what uh, pingdodo does is let's assume i wanted to buy uh, a star wars uh, uh, character figure say a darth vader uh, online uh, at tmall or uh, i mean on 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 pingdodo uh, and uh, they'll say yes okay if you want to buy this if you buy 10 you will get a discount of 30% right so i'm like ah let me let me ping theo let me ping arun and say hey there's this cool uh, special edition dark vader uh, do you want to buy it as well and say yes yes we do uh, and then we share with a few other friends uh, and we collectively buy it so you're sharing on and this is all done on wechat and then collectively that adds on to your uh, to your basket and then yeah you you purchase it you split the cost etc now that's the social e-commerce very very popular very popular in tier 2 tier 3 uh, mainland china as well and they're doing phenomenally well and we have not heard of it in most of the world right even in the tech circles people haven't heard about it and that's the beauty of the of the chinese startup ecosystem and this is going to be the beauty of the indian startup ecosystem is all these models are serving local needs right uh, and serving tens of billions and hundreds of millions of users 
and there is no cross border element there is no ambition to go overseas in the next 3 to 5 years all of it maybe just go overseas to raise funding which is what a majority of the chinese firms did they never really operated overseas um, and they just continue to baffle and blow your mind off uh, alibaba so here's a stat from 2017 2018 uh, which is a mckinsey or a bain report uh, and i stand to be corrected which of the two it was or, or a bcg report one of the three which spoke about um, the amount of venture capital that exists in mainland china and the amount invested by bat which is baidu alibaba tencent at that stage baidu was significantly uh, more important than it is in today's world it's kind of lost its star i would say it's still it's still a significantly large company multi billion dollar enterprise but not at the same scale and has not grown in the same way that tencent and alibaba have been able to uh, locally or overseas um, but anyways uh, coming back to it was almost 45% of venture capital in mainland china was uh, from uh, the big tech firms uh, and uh, it's not just them investing as their own cvcs but they also have them investing in the alumni uh, and uh, backing other ventures so they believe in the naspers model which tencent was would have been significantly influenced with another multi billion dollar company that nobody knows about uh, naspers owned 1/3 of tencent at one stage they're a south african company uh, the valuation of the amount owned uh, under the tencent was much larger than the value of the company itself hit uh, on, on on its own a bit of the yahoo and Ali, uh, alibaba story a few years ago uh, but anyway so naspers invested in tencent they still hold a significant shareholding in tencent Tencent does the same in a host of companies. Alibaba does the same, and others like uh, JD.com, Baidu. All of them invest significant amount of money. Now, what beyond the money that's coming in in the local Chinese ecosystem? This is important. Is it then gives them this platform for you to be able to scale significantly? So, if you have had uh, somebody invest in, uh, say, a Tencent invest in a in a in a startup. uh then they have the whole tencent ecosystem right uh, to accelerate them and it is beneficial for tencent once they realize this is a good investment to promote this because if their valuation goes up they they do well um secondly in addition to on this point is many chinese unicorns uh, reach their unicorn status within 2 years 50% or more uh, around 50% of them reach unicorn status within 2 years uh, and average years is Four years, while in the US it was about seven years. This is about a, a year or year and a half old uh, uh, statistic, but this still shows you how that growth happens. Thirdly, they like to list early. Many of these startups list early, uh, either in the US or in mainland China. Uh, in mainland China, they are easing listing norms, driven by President Xi himself talking about supporting innovative businesses to be able to list and raise capital locally. So. Uh, both Shenzhen and uh, Shanghai are ramping up their listing rules uh, to make it easier for uh, uh, deep tech, big tech firms. Uh, as is Hong Kong when it comes to biotech firms. A uh, small note, which which I posted yesterday on this article, uh, Hong Kong Stock Exchange now has four times the volumes of London Stock Exchange, right? And they wanted to refer to Hong Kong as the Nasdaq of the East. And I said uh, in a few years' time, you'll be calling Hong Kong, New York Stock Exchange the Hong Kong Exchange of the East, and uh nasdaq as the shenzhen stock exchange of the west sorry uh, yeah so uh, 
it, it's going to be very interesting on how these develop but they like to list and that's why uh, you see them uh, having a you know you you get your returns as a vc or a company so you are more vested in actually putting money in and uh, helping these companies grow fast i know it was a long answer but and i i went touched about four five points under there but summarizing i think platform will be important secondly uh, fundraising has become much better for early stage covid's impacted that but i expect that to uh, pick up significantly across asia uh, number 3 is uh, regulations for big techs is a positive not a negative uh, in the medium to long term because it will then allow smaller players to also take a piece of the pie like in china 90% of payments is uh, mobile payments uh, market is wechat and tencent sorry wechat and uh, alipay so if other players come in uh, there's a case right now between bydance and uh, tencent on uh, anti monopoly and uh, which will go to the supreme court uh, likely and that will define the way things will run in china but i expect that there is going to be significant opening up of that market and reduction of monopolies uh, indian upi as well has brought in thresholds on how much one payment player can process so if they hit 30% then they'll have to pull down or reduce the numbers that they are transacting uh, etc so that is another uh, good element and indian uh, regulators have also been looking at a variety of things there. so yeah platform will be important regulators regulations will be important and you will see models which are very locally focused in uh, local languages uh, china it's a little more homogeneous from a language perspective because it's traditional chinese at least in in, in written form while in india you're talking about 20 plus languages right uh, and say say where arun is right in the uh, you know the tip of india uh, on the border of two states who are very proud about their language origins and uh, a majority of whom don't speak hindi or even understand hindi right they may understand a bit of it but they don't speak or converse and for sure don't read hindi uh, because it's not mandatory uh, to uh, have hindi in the curriculum uh, hindi is one of our official languages but it only probably covers about 50% of the population uh, when it comes to native use of hindi and and that that too under various dialects but southern states western east states have a strong language origins so tamil is meant to be a over 2000 or is uh, some will say 5000 old uh, language uh, and not an origin it's not doesn't uh, if i and arun correct me if i'm wrong doesn't have an origin in sanskrit right it's meant to be an independent uh, line on its own whereas a majority of indian languages have their source uh, as sanskrit so just just to add to that point because it makes me feel very proud uh, in in like about 1000 years ago when kings were going through their education they would typically go after two languages one would be they learn sanskrit so that they can interact with the northern part of india and they learn tamil so that they can learn, interact with the southern part of india both these languages have uh, had very strong literary uh, roots so uh, and they had to be literate in, in in those two languages if, if they had to have any command over the landscape So, um, uh, Mushir, that I actually we could actually write a book on this particular episode uh, because you've given us so much uh, comparing uh, the Indian and the Chinese landscape. Uh, you you are also the co-founder of India Tech Hong Kong, which kind of clearly shows because the amount the, the authority with which you speak, the facts that you bring to the table is just amazing. Um, I have a question for you because I've been fascinated by the growth of. for instance pinguago and that's that that's something that resonates with me especially the with the creators economy that's happening 
in the West, but they are taking yeah. a very social media centric approach to it. Whereas in the East, you are starting to look at more e-commerce, transactional, um, uh, transaction facilitating approach. This very similar business model, but uh, if you if you look at it, you, the, the the end result for the customer is slightly different in the East. Um, again, you have seen India take a different route to innovation, a very uh, government-driven, India-stack-driven uh, approach to innovation, whereas China have been largely private sector, you go do it, we will then take control at a, at a later stage and all that. What kind of learnings do you see that um, regions such as Africa, for instance, which are probably 10 years behind these two parts of the world, India and China, probably even, even behind, uh, further behind, say Latin America, which is probably not as far behind, but probably they're, they're comparably there, um, and Southeast Asia. So these are the three regions, in my opinion, where there's going to be a lot of excitement over the next 20 years. What kind of lessons do you think these regions will take from India and China uh, stories? Because these have had two different approaches. Both of them have made mistakes. And both of them have managed to do certain things. It's a very, very interesting question uh, and uh, thought-provoking, right? Uh, and predicting 20 years in the future, I would say 20 years in the future, all of them will be almost on par. Uh, they will be leapfrogging, they'll be catching up. Uh, there will be models which will saturate in India and China. India will get closer. So a lot of Chinese people uh, look at India as where China was 10 years ago. I'm like, not 10, maybe five, right? Uh, but, you know, Quite often, we don't pay enough um, adherence to, um, you know, per capita income and cost of revenue per user uh, in in pure dollar terms or even purchasing power parity terms. I think that's a very important metric, right? One of the reasons that you've seen an acceleration in China of, you know, why they have 200 times the payment volumes of, uh, of US is, the purchasing power has increased and a lot of people are doing it on mobile phone. Culture plays a big role, right? But uh, similarly, if you look at the volumes in India, they may be comparable, but the dollar value is not the same. And it's for smaller values and people are still, a lot of it is done through bank account transfers and, you know, uh, very different models. But I think that's going to be an important element is we are not only talking about economies in the emerging world who are um, developing their technology and infrastructure, but these economies are also growing. Right. So they will move from being, uh, you know, from a smaller GDPs to bigger GDPs, predominantly young population. All these three regions, I think on average, um, populations are 60-70% uh, of the population is below 30. Right. Extreme uh, Africa, I think it's, it, the numbers are much lower from a median uh, age. Uh, Latin America is slightly older, but, uh, but uh, and much larger volumes. Africa, again, same problem. People... Look at it as a homogeneous market. Southeast Asia, Theo mentioned that as well, not homogeneous. But the models I would say that they would approach is dependent on uh, their progress and amount of money that they can invest, right? So if you have the necessary funding in the government uh, side, uh, then you, you now need to start building digital infrastructure. And this is what UPI, uh, India Stack did, right? It need, and, and India kind of showed everybody uh, in the emerging market world that you don't need a huge amount of investment to actually run programs like that and be able to reach the scale. So you can't say, hey, oh yeah, you could do it in a market of 20 million or 30 million, right? It's small. But you're talking about 1.3 billion billion population, but Aadhaar covering 1.2 billion people, right? And I do feel that India should 
uh, actively look to see how we can export what we did with India stack or an Africa stack, a, a Brazil stack or a Chile stack as it were, and supporting that, right? Because you, there's nothing to lose. There's no competition uh, between the countries uh, individually simply because you look, these help local infrastructures build. And uh, in a sense, if they come up, uh, there's also the opportunity for Indians to export their technology. And UPI is doing that. Uh, UPI is going to Southeast Asia and the Middle East as well. Uh, they spoke about international expansion. So I think uh, depending on uh, affordability, first step would be for them to build a digital infrastructure. Uh, and if they can use a uh, multitude of UN grants and uh, or themselves, that will be great. That's number one. Uh, if they're not able to do that, they could then deploy the Chinese model of 15 years ago, right? When e-commerce actually kicked in, which is Alibaba and uh, predominantly and why Alipay came in is because there wasn't a proper payment methodology. Uh, credit cards have a very low penetration even now in both India and China. People forget that India has got less than what 50 million credit cards and China is probably is a smaller number uh, and usage in terms of uh, your uh, uh, credit limits are very low on credit cards in, in China, and it was only union pay. So debit cards is what ruled rule the world uh, in India, uh, but you needed payment methodologies. So Alipay came out, came out of it. Uh, regulators did not really create any new regulations or policies till much later. Uh, you know, I think it took 10 years for them to come up with the regulations on escrows and the holding of funds by mobile operators for the Chinese regulators. So they went with the approach of let local players develop the technology if they have the funds and, and grow. And if it's not systematically impacting the, the economy uh, and it's not uh, having any uh, social impact, uh, adverse social impact, let them grow and then we can bring in the regulations accordingly, right? Because uh, they're also learning, they're also growing, understanding how it is to uh, build a financial ecosystem. Uh, so that would be the approach I would say that countries can use in these two ecosystems. But there's a third approach, which I would recommend, right, is to, because both of these approaches are very domestic focused and uh, with the nationalist sentiment running deep across the world, uh, there's a lot of protectionism in terms of saying we would develop this on our own. But that needs a lot of effort, it needs a lot of talent and commitment, right? Uh, in many of the cases, you need very stable political um, uh, you need stable political environment and governments that have similar beliefs. As much as uh, in India, we have a, we almost have a, we had a two-party system for a while, but we have a two-alliance uh, 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 system, right? One is the national, uh, the the NDA and the UPA. Um, so, but largely their economic reforms, their uh, approach to regulations are very similar. Uh, they're thereabouts. Aadhaar card uh, India was initiated under the Congress government, but uh, was executed by the Modi government. Similar story with GST. So they do think alike. And, and for countries like India, you can't really have very diverse approaches to how you're going to grow the economy. You actually, there is a middle line and there's probably 10% on each side that you can, you can draw on and push through, not much more. So political will and stability is important. But if in case it's not there, I think they should look to partner with countries with whom they are on friendly terms with countries like India or in, and China's got a huge amount of partners in uh, in uh, in Latin America and Africa and use those technology right uh, to build themselves up. Uh, of course, with concerns on you know ensuring that data integrity etc is there and choose the options. But 
look to uh, get uh, some of the other countries to help them build this out and accelerate then the development of fintech as it were uh, and it's happening it's slowly happening and the regulators i think have become much more savvier and uh, international agencies are more on the on the ball now than they were the the timeline to react is is shrunk so people are reacting quite well I'm going to echo what Arun was saying. Um, you need to write a book on it. And next time when we do have events, I'm absolutely dragging you so that you can speak you. to others because this is eye-opening and, and that's how we get better, right? As we get ideas yeah. from other economies and, and try to see how we can change the way we're doing. Because I know both Arun and I say it enough times on this show and like what he was saying okay. earlier in the show, if you look at a lot of the fintech development or the fintech innovation, if you will, in London and New York, San Francisco, what have you, is always the same thing, right? Is fintechs trying to copy what the banks are doing? Oh, someone has a checking account. Oop, let's do a checking account. Nope, sustainability is in. Okay, now let's do a bamboo debit card. But yeah. in the end of the day, we're just repeating the same thing with just a different UI. We're not thinking outside of what we can do. and. What you're saying is fascinating. Um, and I want to keep going. But before I let you go, I have one last thing, which is something yes, that please. has been on our mind and we think about it a lot. If you look at Asian economies, you look at Japan, you mm -hmm. look at China, you look at Hong Kong, none of us are getting any younger. As a matter of fact, fun fact to, to those who are listening, Hong Kong actually has the world's highest life expectancy in the entire world, even higher than, than Japan, which was really surprising when I first heard of it. Um, now, with that being said, with how the territory is approaching banking, there are no lack of mm -hmm. banks, there are no lack of virtual bank licenses, as a matter of fact, it's been going Correct. on um, quite hefty. Um, but aside from all those, is, is the region actually doing anything about people getting older as what we've seen in Singapore, as what we've seen in Japan, where are the opportunities? It's, 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 you know, it's very pertinent. Longevity is and aging is, is a major point. And uh, it's a, it's a small passion of mine in the, in, in the modern day. Um, Hong Kong's uh, approach is even though we have a long life expectancy, the median age is somewhere closer to mid forties, right? So about 43, 44. So you do still have a good chunk of people who are in their in their 20s and 30s and 40s. So uh, there's a wider spread of services being offered and focus areas. Um, the government does is acutely aware of it, but the approach has been more from uh, healthcare and uh, and uh, you know we, we saw somebody uh, I saw a post recently just talking about a multi-billion-dollar fund being set up on um, technology to uh, enable uh, you know healthier lifestyles uh, and uh, gene technology not necessarily gene technology but a lot of biotech technology hong kong is one of the preeminent places in the world when it comes to uh, biotech right and they mean uh, cures for multiple diseases and others discovered here as well so um, the government is looking at it but i wouldn't say necessarily looking at uh, financial services uh, and fintech uh, per se um, you do have the uh, the provident fund uh, the mandatory provident fund uh, 
of the equivalent of the pension fund that the government runs uh, and uh, you know, it's a compulsory contribution for em all employees and employers um, that is being more digitized they're changing the structure of it and uh, making it more uh, better for consumers uh, and they expect billions of dollars of savings through that and better for this uh, individual but i still think we are a little distance away from uh, primarily focusing on the elderly and uh, building out uh, services uh, on fintech here uh, in hong kong uh, uh, in japan there is i think a much more acute problem because you do see millions of people there and uh, the shrinking of the population is is the is a bigger concern there uh, right so uh, that will evolve uh, there it's going to be much rapid they need things now whereas in hong kong probably the need is a 5 to 10 year uh, horizon and that's where uh, they will start focusing on how they can build better financial services uh, and other support systems for the economy right uh, we we have a decent gdp and per capita we are fairly uh, well off uh, so that's aiding the support but uh, they will have to soon switch to it uh, so you are starting to see uh, more initiatives uh, to support on the healthcare side and uh, but uh, on financial services it's it's probably a 3 to 5 year horizon well, that will be another area that um, we will look forward to. Uh, there is never a dull moment. I think that's how I will summarize it. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Mishirat. This is fascinating, amazing, breathtaking. I don't know what other adjectives I want to use, but appreciate your time. And thank you so much again. And thank you all for listening in to another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.